Jazz, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Welcome, dress listeners, to the continuation of our conversation from earlier this week with Ellery Lynn, who is the curator of the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection at the Historic Royal Palaces in London. And a specialist in Tudor style, she has written two books on the subject entitled Tudor Fashion, and the second is entitled Tudor Textiles. And without further ado, we are actually going to jump back in to learning about the sumptuary laws of this era and also a bit about historic grooming and laundry practices. Welcome back, Ellery. So until I read your book, I did not know that, um, as you write, up until 1574, women had been exempt from sumptuary laws and that it was Elizabeth who reversed this trend. So first off, I'm hoping you could give us a brief overview about the purpose of sumptuary laws. Yeah, so sumptuary law is a really interesting law in England, which ran through the Middle Ages and into the Tudor period, where it codified what people were allowed to wear. So, you know, it codified what fabrics and what colors you were allowed to wear by rank Mm -hmm. and by income. So essentially, you would know by looking at somebody where they fitted in to society. So, for example, you could only wear velvet um, of red and blue if you were the rank of duke or baron or knight or above. You could only wear cloth of silver or gold if you were an immediate member of the royal family or an earl, which is the highest classification of the aristocracy. I mean, you couldn't even wear silk or embroidery unless you were a baron or a knight or you owned property over a certain amount of money. So it's a a really helpful tool for us in identifying surviving uh, fabrics, textiles, um, you know, also portraiture. And I, you know, I guess there are aspects of it that are part of protectionism because Mm -hmm. they mean that, you know, most of society is wearing domestic grown, you know, domestic grown products wool and things like that. But yeah, and interestingly, it was Elizabeth who introduced sumptuary law for women, because of course, until that point, it, you know, women were, um, they weren't ruling. So right. they were... They weren't a threat per se. They weren't a threat. Exactly. So there was no need to sort of codify what they were wearing because they were accessories to the men up until that point. Um, but you're right, you're right to mention threat, actually. Threat, that's a really good way of, of describing it because, of course, if you are a king or, you know, a powerful noble, you want to make sure that you retain that magnificent appearance and that instantly recognizable status at court. You don't want somebody else coming in wearing the same thing as you. That would be no good. And we know that Henry VIII actually charged some of his courtiers with treason for daring to wear <sighs> um, things that were in competition with his outfits. Wow. Okay, so this is really fascinating because, you know, despite the fact that she instituted these restrictions on what other women could wear, ostensibly to maintain her level of sartorial splendor, 
You also identify her as a penny pincher. Yeah. <laughs> and said that she actually spent far less on clothing than some of the other Tudor monarchs who preceded her. And so my question is, is like, you know, when we look at the portraits of her, it seems like she's kind of outdoing even them. So how did she obtain her finery? She was very clever, basically. She was a penny pincher by necessity. So uh, Henry VII handed down to his son, Henry VIII, an incredibly vast fortune, which Henry basically squandered um, on his wars and palaces and tapestries. And so when Elizabeth became queen, her treasury was, was greatly depleted. So she had to maintain that magnificence on much, much less money. So one of the things that she did was to make it known that she really loved gifts of fabric and embroidery. Mm. So in the New Year's gift rolls to Elizabeth, you see many gifts of beautiful embroidered dresses, fabrics, um, and so on. But she was also very good at recycling. So we know she had a vast wardrobe, but we also know from the warrants and the documents that she sent a lot of them back regularly to the royal wardrobe, to her craftsmen in the royal wardrobe, to change them around, refashion them and repurpose them. Um, to basically make them look like new outfits when they got sent back. And because they were in these parts that I was talking about earlier, you know, detachable sleeves, four parts, partlets, different aspects that could be pinned together, it, they were sort of modular. You could, you could create new outfits and give the impression that your wardrobe was much greater than it actually was. Hmm. Well, and she had something like around 2,000 items of clothing, which still is, is that's, that's not maybe as many as some of her other predecessors, but it's still a lot. It's still a lot. But what's amazing is that eyewitnesses said that she had a wardrobe of 6,000 items. So that was the impression that she was creating was of a wardrobe that was, you know, much greater than it actually was. Yeah. And, and when you have all of these items, particularly if they're in bits and pieces, and also not to mention all the gems and jewels that oftentimes encrusted her ensembles, Obviously, there has to be somebody who looks after all this stuff. Yeah. I'm hoping you can tell us about the really kind of elaborate operations of the great wardrobe of robes and beds. And I just have to say, this is such a fabulous title. It is, isn't it? <laughs> For an official office of the royal household. Like, who was, who was working there and what did all these people do? Because it was, it was an operation. It was, it was. Um, and interesting, I think if I could go back in time, I would, I would, I'd like to go and see how they operated because it sounds to me like an incredibly well-oiled bureaucratic machine. It sounds fascinating. So the offices of the great wardrobe of robes and beds were situated in the middle of the city of London. And in fact, the street uh, where it was situated is still known as um, the wardrobe. So uh, the church is still known as St. Andrews by the wardrobe. So there's, you know, there's still a, a legacy there. But it was a massive storehouse uh, was the place, uh, you know, the offices where the people the offices of the household bought the cloth, made the clothes, repaired the clothes, created the caskets and the storage facilities for the clothes. Also organized, you know, which 
parts of the wardrobe would go to which palace because the Tudor court moved uh, as often as every two weeks. And so oh, wow. making sure that the right clothes were at the right palace at the right time, you know, the right things was a, a real operation. Um, and, and when the palace, you know, when the court toured from one palace to another, it could require upward of 300 different carts to move everything. So everything needed to run very smoothly. The clothes needed to be in the right place before the monarch arrived mm-hmm. um, so that they could just walk straight in as if, you know, it was they, they'd always been there. But, you know, also for me, it's quite nice because there's a continuity between the roles of those people and what I do today, which is to, you know, maintain the clothes and, you know, make sure they're kept in the best possible conditions. We know that um, in the storehouses of the wardrobe, they had little fires going to keep away the damp and the humidity. Um, they wrapped things up in linen and canvas to keep the dirt and the dust away. And every now and then they'd take the, you know, the, the items out and brush them or beat them to make sure there weren't any pests on them. So, you know, we have different methods today, but a lot of the, you know, a lot of the reasons that we do things are still the same. Yeah. And, and we've actually had quite a lot of requests from listeners about a history of laundry. Oh, great. Which, yes. which you do detail a bit in the book yeah, as to like I love who, the laundry. who was taking care of all of that. It was really fascinating. It is a really interesting subject and um, one that we don't know really, uh, you know, enough about, um, it's fair to say. So the people doing the laundry, I mean, the outer clothes were not washed. They were made of natural fabrics and natural dyes. So you couldn't wash them. You couldn't submerge them in water. The only way of keeping those clean was to brush them, to spot clean them, to, you know, put sweet smelling herbs and powders on them to try and keep them relatively fresh. Um, the the only thing that was regularly washed was linen. Mm-hmm. So this is linen underwear. This could withstand washing and could be bleached and could be, you know, regularly laundered. This was the main form of hygiene. Um, so in the royal household, you have different people doing different aspects of linen laundry. In fact, that's why we still call it a linen basket. I don't know if you do, um, If you know, we, we definitely do in England. We call it a linen basket when we refer to our laundry basket. And so linen for the kitchen was washed by um, officers of the kitchen. So that's your handkerchiefs and tablecloths and so on and your bread covers, um, which were linen. But underwear is interesting. So the, the, the monarchs had private laundresses who would wash their private linen. And that would happen in a room in the palace. And that was very carefully um, done. It was a very intimate process because, of course, you're you're really up close and personal with the, you know, the, the king's undies. <laughs> so the laundress, you know, there's one laundress, Anne Harris for, for Henry VIII, and she was very well paid um, and was given property when she retired. Wow. But then there's the rest of the court. And that's what I'm really fascinated in because at Hampton Court, we have this incredible kitchen, um, the Tudor kitchen, uh, where we know 200 men worked every day creating meals for the court. But much less spoken about is the fact that there must have been an equal number of laundresses washing the linens of the court. Now, that must have happened at the riverside. So we have no archaeological footprint for that. But they must have been somewhere. And they must have been washing the linen. And 
I mean, I'd, it, to be a fly, you know, a fly on the wall or yeah. to be there and hear their gossip because they must have been going into the bedchambers and retrieving the linen. They must have been moving around the palace almost invisibly, collecting the dirty linen and going to the river. I love to imagine them kind of arriving at the river saying, you'll never guess who I've just seen in so-and-so's bedchamber. This all kind of plays into this bigger theme of grooming and hygiene, which you also talk about in the book. Can you tell us about how generally one was keeping their bodies clean at this time? What, what were the bathing, grooming practices for like teeth and nails and hair and, and all that, Jess? So the main form of hygiene is the linen underwear. So the linen underwear is basically your primary way of keeping your body clean and fresh because linen is very good at absorbing sweat. And so a high status person at the court could be changing their linen underwear, you know, several times a day. And that would be the way that they would get rid of, you know, any smell. Um, We know that Elizabeth did bathe. And we know that Henry VIII bathed. They were fond of bathing, but that probably didn't happen very often. It probably only happened once a month because bathing was not actually a particularly safe thing to do because the water was quite dirty. But we know that they did enjoy bathing when they did it because we we know that um, at Hampton Court we have archaeological remnants of very nice bathing tiles. So they had piped water into their into a bathroom and a nice tiled bathroom. So when they bathed, again, linen comes uh, to the fore. So they wouldn't bathe naked. They would bathe in a linen shirt or a linen chemise and the the wooden bath would be lined with linen. The water would be warm and it would would have uh, sweet smelling herbs in it. Mm-hmm. So that was how they bathed. But generally it was the linen. They used perfumes. They rubbed roses on their skin to try and keep themselves fresh. But it's still, you know, it still must have been quite a sweaty, smelly environment <laughs> in the height of summer. Uh, how they kept their teeth and their mouths fresh. Well, that's interesting because um, during the reign of Elizabeth, is when sugar became very fashionable. So before sugar came to the scene, actually, the, you know, people's teeth tended to be very good. But um, when sugar uh, appeared, the, you know, uh, dental hygiene goes way down. They were cleaning their teeth with cloths. Mm-hmm. They were chewing herbs, but that's about the extent of it. So we know that Elizabeth had very black teeth, black and rotten teeth as the result of the fact, you know, she really loved sugar. They wouldn't wash their hair. So they had very, very fine combs that they would use to brush their hair and get rid of any kind of, you know, nits and bugs and things like that. Um, And they also wore linen on their heads. So underneath the French hoods and the English hoods that we've been talking about were things called linen coifs, which are sort of little linen bonnets, which again would absorb, you know, the oils from the the hair. So really, yeah, I mean, linen, linen's a big deal. (laughs) Also, this kind of leads us straight into the use of cosmetics. Elizabeth was especially famous for her pale white skin. She was. Can you tell us more about this? Yes. So, of course, at court, pale skin is very fashionable because it meant that you were not out doing uh, any form of labor. So if you had a tan, it was because you were outside working. So it was a status symbol to show that you lived a life of idle leisure. Therefore, you had very, very, very pale skin. Elizabeth, we know, 
wore quite a lot of makeup and it became very fashionable during her reign for other ladies to also wear makeup but the ingredients in this makeup is pretty disastrous um because we know that they were using mercury to make their skin dewy and shiny makes my heart palpitate thinking about that. Absolutely. And we also know that that white powder that she was using on her skin contained lead. So it was basically, you know, it it was probably very dramatic, but it was having a really bad effect on her skin. It was probably creating, you know, pockmarks and different um, markings on her skin, which probably meant that she had to use more and more mm-hmm. all the time. We know that the use of mercury gives you a receding hairline. So that's kind of interesting considering her use of wigs. Mm-hmm. Um, later in her reign, we know she had about 80 wigs. So the, the makeup was a, a not a, a great idea, really. And when we refer to Elizabeth's mercurial temper, you know, her fits of rage and things like that, you know, I wonder how much of it was because she was actually being poisoned by the things that she was putting on her skin. Yeah, yeah. That's just devastating to think about today. Yeah, it is. So you have noted in the book and and a little bit earlier that she had about 1,900 items of her clothing um, around the time of her death in, in, in her inventory. And we've already spoken about the fact that Oftentimes these were gifted, and that's one of the reasons why we don't have excellent examples of these garments in museum collections. But we do have fragments of things. Would you tell us a little bit about some of your favorite examples of pieces that we do know belonged to some of the royal households? Yeah, so as we discussed earlier, sadly, very little survives. But as you say, there are fragments. There are there are accessories that are purported to have belonged to um you know to the Tudor monarchs so in various museums there are things like a hawking glove or riding boots or a hat associated with Henry VIII or Elizabeth I uh, but we at Historic Royal Palaces, we have two things from the 16th century, which are, are among my favourites, one of which is um, called the Bristow hat. Um, and that comes to us by direct descent through the family of Nicholas Bristow, who was an important courtier at the court of Henry VIII, um, and in fact, an official of the royal wardrobe. So um, I quite like it because, you know, in many ways, sort of doing a quite a similar job. Yeah. to me. Um, and we know that he was a very fastidious stock checker of silks in and out. He devised this whole system of inventory taking, which I love in a really geeky way. But this hat is wonderful. It's a, it's a plum coloured silk tufted hat with green ostrich feather and a silver braid button. So by the materials alone, we know that it belongs to a courtier because of those sumptuary laws. Mm-hmm. But what's really incredible is the fact it survived because the family believed it belonged to Henry VIII, because uh, they believed that um, at the siege of the Battle of Boulogne in uh, the 1540s, Henry threw up his hair, uh, his hat in joy. Nicholas Bristow caught it, and that was, you know, how it entered the family. Ah, that's lovely. It's a great story and a really wonderful survival of the Tudor period, whether it is Henry's hat or not. It kind of it doesn't matter so much to me. It's sort of just a really great example of how these things might survive mm-hmm. um, and a really great story. We really get in into a really colourful character of um, the Tudor court. And another uh, fantastic survival is something called the Bacton altar cloth, which we care for. 
And it's so called because it was an altar cloth in use at the Church of St. Faith's in Backton, Herefordshire, which is a, a gorgeous little English rural uh, church. But basically, it is likely that this altar cloth was cut up from a skirt or a dress uh, that belonged to Elizabeth I and very, very similar to the the embroidery that we see um, in the rainbow portrait, actually, that it's embroidered in flowers um, and so on. And we know it must have been a royal item because it's on cloth of silver, which oh, by some right. free law means that it has to be reserved for the very upper echelons of society. So, uh, again, um, uh, and the reason it's so exciting is because that that church was the birthplace of one of Elizabeth's most trusted confidants, Blanche Parry, who we know was the recipient of many gifts of clothing from Elizabeth herself. So, again, another fantastic story in another way that these items might survive. And, and you know, hopefully there are more out there to be found. And this is actually not an uncommon story, if I'm correct, that some of these really valuable textiles, and not just in England, but in other locations well around the world, ultimately end up in uh, the service to the church, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, and I think actually that's probably what um, ensures their survival, because they get turned into a, into a sort of sacred object. Mm-hmm. Whereas if they enter domestic use, which most of them probably did, handed down to the kind of favourites and, and so on, they probably got cut up and turned into, um, you know, other dresses or then maybe upholstery um, and then cut down into further things as they fell out of fashion and so on. So, you know, I think, as I said, I think, you know, probably remnants of the Tudor wardrobe survive as cushion covers, um, you know, up and down the country. But the fact that they entered the church meant that they were, that was less likely to happen to them. Right. Absolutely. Larry, thank you so much for joining us today. This was like a super fascinating look into your book, just one of your books. And there is so, 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 so much more jam-packed in there um, for you listeners that want to go and check it out. We have gotten in the past lots of requests for this episode. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. And I could talk about this all day. (laughs) I I mean, it could be its own entire podcast series, honestly. (laughs) But if people do want to learn more about the collections uh, of the historic royal palaces, where can they find out more? Well, the first thing would be to come to the palaces of historic royal palaces. Um, We look after six palaces, including Hampton Court and the Tower of London, which are, of course, um, the stages for much of the Tudor drama. But if you can't get to our palaces, um, a really great place to start would be our website. We have blogs on there. We have stories. We have links to events and special talks, curators' talks, articles, and so on. Um, and the same thing is true on our social media channels, where we, you know, we have lots. We basically, as curators, we often share our research via those channels. So um, it's a it's a great place to sort of have that conversation with us. And what is your website address? And what are your social media? media handles www.hrp.org.uk and just look for us um, on Facebook and Twitter as Historic Royal Palaces. Great. Well, thank you so very, very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. Allery, thank you again for sharing your expertise. And listeners, we cannot recommend her two books enough. Again, those are called Tudor Fashion and Tudor Textiles. So many wonderful images of art and dress of the era and very detailed information on lifestyles and professions of the era. 
And like Ellery, I might just be a bit obsessed with knowing more about this department of the great wardrobe of robes and beds. (laughs) I mean, come on. Um, And I also really loved how Ellery sees her role as a curator, as, as an extension of this profession, which is like 500 years old. Oh, it's all just so cool. She has such an amazing job. (laughs) And we would love to actually have her on again sometime to hear all about the other wonderful items in the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection. Yes, yes, yes. Please, Ellery, you have a standing invitation. I mean, so many cool treasures that she keeps. That's that's kind of what they call it in the UK. Sometimes they're (laughs) a keeper of a collection. So um, that does it for us today. Until then, may you consider, again, the sartorial splendor residing in your wardrobe next time you get dressed. And of course, reach out to us. Let us know if you have a future fashion history mystery query you would like answered. You can email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also, of course, DM us on Instagram and our handle is at dressed with underscore podcast. This is where we publish images to accompany each week's episode. And of course, go ahead and follow the Royal Ceremonial Dress Collection and the Historic Royal Palaces at Historic Royal Palaces. You will not be disappointed. That's right. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each and every week. We will catch you next week for one of our final two episodes of season three of Dressed. (laughs) Dressed, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.